Hello, and welcome to the Ever Widening Circles podcast, designed to give you more joy, less fear, and no end to the evidence that a brighter future is actually possible. We want you to hear from thought leaders in a wave of progress well underway around the globe that almost no one knows about. This podcast will give you hope for the future and help you take control of your life online. I'm Dr. Linda Ulrich, founder of Ever Widening Circles. Since 2014, we've been restoring people's hope in the future by writing thousands of articles about insight and innovation going uncelebrated. And along the way, I've been having incredible conversations with thought leaders that we are now sharing with the world. Today, I'm going to chat with Drew Dudley, an internationally acclaimed leadership speaker and expert, a Wall Street Journal best-selling author, and surely one of the charter members of the conspiracy of goodness that we've been pointing to at Everwidening Circles all these years. Drew and I became friends uh, years ago, and I wrote an article about an amazing TED Talk that he gave years ago with over 5 million views now. It's called Everyday Leadership, and I often refer to it as the lollipop moment TED Talk. Once you dive into it, you'll know why, and the moniker will become a placeholder in your mind for the inspiring moments in your life that you can cause for others or that others have helped you with. Through much of the of Drew's work, he reminds us that leadership is an ordinary, everyday person opportunity for us all. Uh, it's not just some quality that executives and people at the top of organizations have. What Drew's work has taught me personally is that we all have the power to lead in everyday moments, like, like being the person who compliments and thanks a cashier at a grocery store, like being the one who thanks a janitor at our kid's school, like buying a person who's in an irate mood at the coffee shop, a Danish. They're actually, and quite obviously, hurting. So Drew, <laughs> oh, I couldn't help but run on about you. You are such an amazing person in my life and countless others. So welcome and help me finish introducing you. Tell me what you think of the work you're doing. Oh, Linda, admired by the people at her home and work. Linda. <laughs> Now she has to interview a Canadian jerk. Linda. <laughs> Linda. Oh, I forgot to say that Drew is Canadian. <laughs> a little bit of Canadian tribute there. We're going to throw in Canadian band lyrics the entire interview and see who can catch them as little Easter eggs. <laughs> it's wonderful to be talking to you today from the mountains as I look out. I'm in a great mood because I'm out staring over this magnificent mountain vista here in British Columbia, Canada. So... I'm so thrilled to get to chat with you. And I was singing and I forgot your question. Well, you know, how do you, if you get the opportunity, what do people, what do you, you tell people about your work? It's so extraordinary. And so, <laughs> you know, not your typical leadership fair. How do you describe what you're teaching people? I guess the way that I sort of encapsulate my work is by saying that I think that through a number of factors, we've created this world where most of the leadership on the planet comes from people who don't think that they're leaders. And I think that what I try to do with my work is try to give people a process, not just an idea, but a process to do a number of things. One, to better recognize the leadership that surrounds us every day in our own lives, in the lives of the people we care about, and in our communities. And two, to make sure that not only do we do a better job recognizing that leadership, 
but that we actually engage in particular behaviors that consciously make sure we're creating it every day. And so I think that all of us have the capacity to create powerful moments of interpersonal impact. I consider those individual moments leadership. And I think that not only can we do a better job recognizing them, but you can actually train yourself to create them in a more conscious sense. Because I think good people do good things when they're not paying attention. That's just the nature of it. My point is that I think we can come up with a process that makes it a lot more likely we'll pay attention and then we'll do it more often. So my idea of leadership is that we need to stop evaluating it based on accolades and achievements over time and instead boil it down to what I think is at its core, which is everyday behaviors. And so my work really focuses on saying, look, we need to broaden our definition of leadership. We need to recognize that it exists in moments and not titles and influence. And then once we make that recognition, we have to do something about it. We have to change our behavior. And based on some behavioral psychology tricks, I try to present a process to do that. So to make sure that we actually act on these individual leadership moments because they're powerful and they're pretty much the only source of power that's openly available to everybody on earth because most sources of power on the planet are not accessible to most people on the planet. And so for me, it's about the idea that, look, not everyone should be or can be or wants to be a CEO or run a company, but there's this form of leadership to which we all can and should aspire And I think we've been ignoring it for too long. I think we've been diminishing it for too long. And I think that we should not only change how we think about it, how we talk about it, but I want to give people a way of actually changing what they do. So that's the long, short version of it. So that is, (laughs) that's exactly what I wanted you to say, because in my world, I have used your ethos about everyday leadership Almost every day. I'm sure maybe I use it like you just suggested unconsciously now because I've been working at it so long. But can you give us one little example? Because still, I think this whole word leadership feels so big to people. And you're talking about acts of kindness and acknowledgement at a really, really basic level in our lives. Give me a couple of examples. Yeah. and, And again, I think the idea that some of the biggest stuff that we do And I'll give you a specific example, but I just want to revisit quickly about the idea of power is that most of the most powerful things that we do on a daily basis, we not only do we not recognize them as powerful, we actually label them at the other end of the spectrum. We actively diminish them. We call them the little things. And I'm sure that everybody who's listening has talked about the little things that you do every day. And when people talk about kindness and compassion and forgiveness, we sort of flip them off as these easy, nothing, little tiny parts of our lives. And my argument is it's the biggest stuff that we do. And for instance, uh, here's an incredible example that came directly out of my life last year. My Before the pandemic hit, I was on the road 250 days a year, right? And, And so very few things were consistent in my life. And one of the things that tended to happen is I always spend my birthday on the road. And I look, birthdays, I joked in my talk that, you know, we live in this world where we celebrate birthdays where all you have to do is not die for 365 days and you get a cake. But we tend not to recognize like truly impactful things. But I was on the road last year in February. My birthday's in February, which is a depressing enough month as it is. I arrive in this extremely rural community in Iowa to uh, to give this presentation. They've been so wonderful and they knew it was my birthday. And then I was in the middle of what was going to be, I think, six days at home over six weeks. And so I show up at 11 o'clock at night. They've given me access to an apartment. I open up the door 
and immediately have to like jump back because I think I've got the wrong place because as I open the door, there's just stuff all over the floor. And if you're going to like sort of live in an Airbnb or a temporary place, you open the door. If you see stuff on the floor, oh my God, you've gone into someone's house, right? That has kids because there was stuff strewn everywhere. And so I go out, I check all the directions again. I confirm 100% to myself, no, this is where I'm supposed to stay. I open up the door and what I'd seen strewn all over the floor were balloons and lollipops and a giant banner is up on the wall that says, happy birthday, Drew. And this entire factory to whom I'm speaking the next couple of days has signed a giant birthday card that's on the side of the wall. And of all the things that happened last year, even, you know, when you consider that within a couple of weeks, I wasn't able to travel anymore, that our whole world got turned upside down in March of 2020. I still look back at 2020 and that stays with me as an incredibly powerful moment because those individuals knew that some guy was traveling all over the place alone, away from his friends, away from his family. And this group of people I never met before put a ton of effort. Like there was a lot of balloons, Linda, like <laughs> dozens and dozens, which also meant when it was time to leave that those poor people who lived next door to me thought there was a gunfight going on as I popped those things. But uh, that to me is, is a, an individual example of what someone did to me. And like, let's take a look at 2020 and recognize that there's an awful lot of things that we could dwell on. And yet still, when I look back at this year, that pops into my head. I still, when I'm feeling lousy, when I feel frustrated, I still just think of these strangers in Iowa who filled up an entire room full of balloons to wish a guy a happy birthday that most of them had never met. Actually, none of them had met. Only a couple had talked to on the phone. That stays with me, and it's going to stay with me forever. And that's one of the most powerful acts that anyone has ever done in terms of how it impacted my life. And yet it had nothing to do with any kind of traditional concept of what leadership and power was all about, right? These were individuals from every level of the organization who did it. And that is the type of legacy that they've left on me. And it had nothing to do with, you know, how successful their business was or how fancy the speech was or any of that. It was just this extraordinary gesture before I even met any of them that said, we recognize that you are more than just some guy we hired to come and give a speech, that you're a person alone on his birthday. And to me, that's a type of example of one of the most powerful acts of leadership in my life. And look, let's face it. I'm a guy who studies leadership, who gets to work with Fortune 500 companies, extremely what we call, you know, objectively powerful or successful people. And when I get a chance to talk about moments of leadership that I've seen, that's the one I go to. Mm -hmm. Uh, A group of people helping a guy feel welcome and less alone on his birthday, like right down to a cupcake with a candle. Um, So... (laughs) That type of moment, I think, is extraordinary. In the book, I talk about standing in line with a cashier once and watching her work incredibly, incredibly hard to check everybody out at this incredibly rapid pace. I've never seen anyone work so hard at that job. And people were all mean to her. Or even if they weren't mean to her, they were, um, I don't want to even say dismissive. Dismissive recognizes that there's another human being in front of you. What often happens is people look right through her. They're looking at their phone. I think it's It's one thing to be mean to someone. It's another to look through them, to fail to see them there. And I think that one thing that we don't even realize we do often when we're working with people in the service industry is, especially when we're looking at our phones, we will talk to them without making eye contact with them. You know, oh, do you want a bag or how are you going to pay? And and you're just like locked into something else. And I don't even think people realize it when it happens. But to be spoken to without being looked at 
is such a dismissive, diminishing act. And I don't even think that some people realize what it's doing to them. Because when you get so used to it, you're like, oh, that's just the way it is. But subconsciously, it's impacting you. And I remember watching this woman check people out so quickly, work so hard, and nobody was recognizing it. People were snapping at her. One guy snapped his fingers at her, which anyone who's ever worked in the service industry knows that if someone snaps their fingers at you, you should be allowed to tase them. But just once a year, everyone in the service industry once a year gets to do that. That would clean up our act. But I remember thinking that no one was recognizing how great this woman's work was. So I asked her, what's the what's your favorite chocolate here up on the counter near the front? And I remember she snapped at me, which I think spoke to how she was actually feeling inside, but she snapped at me and she was like, the caramels. And there's a, 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 there's a series of words in the English language that you never expect to hear snap at you in anger. And caramels is on that list. Uh, I challenge people listening. There are certain words that it's really hard to say out loud in anger. For instance, try to snap off. Bubbles. Like it's really hard to say bubbles angrily. Uh, kittens. No one ever can like say, oh, these kittens. <laughs> um, it's really hard. And so she snaps at me and I, I felt a little taken aback, but I throw the, the caramels on the belt. And as she goes to put them in the bag, I remember saying to her, actually, I, I got those for you. I've been watching you for 20 minutes and the effort you put into this job that no one's recognizing has just really caught me. And, and I wanted to let you know that I teach leadership at the university and this type of dedication to serving other people often with no gratitude and sometimes the opposite is exactly the type of leadership I want my students to understand. And I just wanted to say that you've inspired me today. So like, thank you for being a leader. And I, I was trying to make her smile. Like that was the whole point. I was willing to drop $2 to make this cashier smile. And she started to cry and that was not what I was going for. <laughs> and I'm Canadian, right? So I have apologize to inanimate objects over which I've tripped. And so a woman crying in front of me just made me melt. And I'm apologizing. And she says, no, it's just that no one's even been polite to me today. And he bought me chocolates. And I don't know how to process this. And to me, that individual moment, I started to realize had a much bigger impact on people than speeches I've given or books that I've written, which I, I hope have had an impact. But in that moment, and it, uh, what it really stuck with me, and I leave this to your listeners as well, one of the tricks that I try to use for days where I'm feeling blah, and, but still want to put a positive energy out in the world is there's a something that comes if, if, imagine if right before you met someone for the first time, someone pulled you aside and said, not a single person has been nice to this person today. Not a single person has seen them. Not a single person has been polite. Just wanted to let you know that. There's an instinct in almost all of us to know that if we're dealing with someone who hasn't had a single moment of kindness all day, there's an urgency within us almost to, to create one because there's an excitement that comes from saying, oh my gosh, I could be someone right now who does something good. And so what that woman said sticks in my head now every chance I can when I interact with a new person. I just think to myself, I don't think anyone's been nice to this person all day. I have no evidence for that but it makes you change the way you treat them. And so that's a long, long answer. I know I told, I love telling stories, but that to me is where leadership lies. Of all the people I've met and all the things they've done and all of the extraordinary stories that people have been kind enough to share with me, it's stuff like that that I think sticks with us. And that's power. And we need to stop calling it little. And we need to embrace that it's powerful because the world 
has systematically like excluded many people from sources of power on earth, but nobody can take away our ability to choose in an individual moment to change the course of how someone views the world, even for a second. That's extraordinary power. And in a world that is making us often feel powerless economically, culturally, you know, within what's going on uh, with COVID, I think it's really important to remember that while the world and our jobs can create situations where we're not always in charge of what we get to do every day, we're always in charge of who we are. And it's so easy to lose sight of that. And it's so easy to become cynical and disillusioned. And I've been battling with that hard over the past few months, but nobody gets to take away who we are, but we can, nobody else gets to take away who we are, but we can choose to act like less than we want to be. And I think we have to consciously work hard not to. Yeah. And, you know, I think that I noticed I wrote a book during the pandemic called happiness is an option. And I start the, I start the book with some stories about people doing the little things and us being better about noticing them in the beginning of the pandemic. I think there was about a two, three, four week window where we saw a lot more of the best in each other. People were more complimentary. They were more patient. You know, <laughs> this is who we are. The advent of the internet and the craziness there did not does not change that we are doers, givers, and helpers. So you've done a great job in the beginning of this interview, you know, giving substance to the to the very, very, very practical things that people can find in your book. I'm holding up a book here, one of my favorites. It's called This Is Day One, A Practical Guide to Leadership That Matters. And this is Drew's book that I have probably two dozen stickies in and constant dog ears and annotations all through. That book is really something if you want a practical guide for living a life that makes you makes you appreciate the fact that we each matter in the lives of others by exactly the kind of examples that drew just gave so drew day one is is both like a why it's so full of stories like the ones you told so full stories and drew is an amazing storyteller so it's a page turner just from a storytelling stage but it's also a how like a how-to to to help us, you know, enjoy opportunities for leadership in our everyday lives. Because there was no better expression than, than, you know, very often a gift of giving is as much a gift to the receiver as it is the the giver. So take, help us imagine. So first of all, there's the book. This is day one. You must get it. It's a perfect antidote for the kind of discord that we're all feeling because we can, as Drew said, really be have a powerful impact with with measures that seem very simple in other people's lives but and take us there can you help us with with your big audacious way that you think a new era would look like if people knew more and really thought more about everyday leadership what would it look like around our dinner tables or boardroom tables that's an interesting question because it's the interesting thing about the book or really, as I've started to think more and more and sort of pick apart my own ideas, because I think that I was taught relatively young that the key idea is to pick something to stand for and believe in in this world, but never let go of the idea that one extraordinary 30-minute conversation could change what you believe. Mm -hmm. And I think that one of the ways that that happens, and a lot of my great teachers have taught me, is that you should spend most of your life trying to prove the stuff you think wrong. (laughs) 
Uh, and they're like, it's really, really frustrating. But what happens is you discover that so many of the things that you believed are flawed or not necessarily true, but the few things that remain that, that um, stand against your onslaught of your own personal questioning are the ones that you can have great faith and truly believe. Um, there was a great uh, professor that I spoke with as part of the leadership program at U of T who taught the moral leadership project at the, at New York university. And she said that you've got all these people coming in talking about how that everyone's opinion is valid. And I don't want to take a stance because I know there are people who disagree with me. And she said, here's the problem. All of you are coming in believing that being open-minded means not taking a stand on something. But in fact, what open-minded means in, you have to go through this world saying, this is what I believe. And this is what I stand for. But always remembering that at any moment, a 30-minute conversation could change your mind. And ultimately, I think that's what stands in the way of, of communication between people now sometimes is that we decide this is what I believe and then never question it. And so it's interesting. A lot of my work is focused on our individual understanding of ourselves and what leadership means. And so it's odd when you ask, like, what would the world look like? Because it's very strange. My work focuses very much on the individual. And collectively, if each individual person takes a look and says, my role every day is to stay true to my values, but not just talk about them and not use them to attack other people, but simply to create proof every day that I actually live these values. I think what would happen was on a global scale, if individual people make a commitment to behaving in a positive way every day, Obviously, the global impact is massive, but I actually very rarely step back and do what you just did, which is let's envision what happens if. For me, it is so hard and such a rabbit hole to start worrying about what other people are doing and mm -hmm. how it fits into it that it pulls away from your focus on doing what you have committed to doing. Right. And I think that so much of the, the stress that we see against one another these days often comes because we're concerned with how other people are behaving more than we are with ourselves, mm -hmm. And we start focusing on the stuff we can't change instead of the stuff that we can. So I think that the biggest thing that I would love to see is for people to be a little less worried about what I call the scariest moment in our lives is that moment between the time that the screen turns off your, t your TV, your computer, your phone, your iPad, whatever, and you fall asleep. Like it kind of surprises me how many people fall asleep watching television, looking at their iPad, texting on their phone. And I started to realize it's because we're really scared of the time between when the screen shuts down and we fall asleep, because in those moments, the only thing you have are your ideas. The only thing you have are your thoughts. And in those moments is when you have to honestly look at yourself and know whether or not you lived up to the values and the person that you wanted to be. And a lot of us find that so stressful that we avoid that moment where it's just us with our head on the pillow, not quite asleep yet, having to live with our thoughts and our ideas and our concept of who we are. And I think that part of the reason that we all want to fall asleep being distracted is to avoid that time. Mm. And my vision of leadership is to allow us in that moment where it's just our thoughts and we can't get distracted and we can't lie to ourselves. We can't put on an act in that moment because we're the only audience. I'd really love people to have the opportunity 
in that moment to be able to point to specific things in their day where they said, not everything went the way I wanted. A lot of things outside of my control blew up in my face. There were moments where I was less than the person I wanted to be. But here is evidence, just two or three moments of pure evidence that I cannot deny that I was the man, the woman, the person I wanted to be. And my work is focused on saying, okay, well, let's identify very clearly what those values are that I want to live every day so that you can't deny that you did it. But that's what I'd really like, Linda. I'd like for not so much how we talk to each other, but how we talk to ourselves. Mm. Because so much of the anger that we see focus outwards at people is because we don't like ourselves. And we are so annoyed that we're less than the people we want to be that we just try to find someone out there in the world who we feel symbolizes an even bigger gap between good and what should be and what is. And that way we could avoid sort of acknowledging our own gap between the person we want to be and how we're actually behaving. I'd like to see a world where we, we give ourselves evidence that we matter. That is such a great point that we start looking outside ourselves for people who don't meet our expectations rather than looking at ourselves. And you have such a great chapter in this book about the difference between, and so it takes courage to do that. It takes courage to sort of lay in those few moments before bed and look objectively at how the day went. And sometimes it takes courage to celebrate the moments that we were at our best too, because people have such negative head talk. Yeah. Um, and confidence. So go through, tell, tell us a little bit. I love your notions about the difference between confidence and courage. Oh, yeah. You know, uh, that came through. I was a geeky, awkward kid in, in university in high school. Right. And uh, there was this friend of mine and man, like when you're a geek, you just kind of look at these people who everything seems to come so easily to. And in his case, women just loved him. And I remember saying like, man, how do you do this? And he gave this big lie that I know a lot of us have been fed. And he's just like, confidence, man. Like, you just got to be confident. And that's one of those cultural cliches that gets thrown around. Like, this is a, a piece of wisdom that's true. And then nobody actually sort of challenges it. And I started to realize this. Confidence is not the key. Like, confidence is acting like things don't scare you. And whether they do or not, like some people it genuinely doesn't, but confidence is acting like things don't scare you. And that means that you can be confident without ever doing anything. You can just act like things don't scare you, but you don't actually have to take action on anything. It's all about how people perceive how you respond to something. Courage, on the other hand, courage is recognizing that something does scare you, that there's the possibility of loss and taking action anyway. Because courage only exists in the face of action. Courage only comes into existence when there's a possibility of loss and you do something anyway. So the difference between confidence and courage is that confidence does not require action. It can exist in the absence of action for an indefinite amount of time. Courage, courage is only a thing when you've done something. And so for me, it's not confidence that truly sets leaders apart. It's courage, the the willingness to take action when there's the possibility of loss. And confidence is often simply acting as if you're willing to take action, but you never have to. And so for me, there's a big difference there because some of the most extraordinary leaders I know are not confident people. They are incredibly neurotic, but they are wildly courageous. Like they are willing to take action when there's a chance that they'll lose something, whether it's a job, whether it's money, whether it's face, you know, like sometimes we worry about losing face. That to me is the big difference there is that if you're out there listening and you don't think you're a confident person, don't worry about it. Most of us aren't like, I don't know many great leaders who aren't a little bit neurotic. 
You know what I mean? Because they're always worried about whether they're doing the right thing. The leaders you want to avoid are the ones who are completely and totally confident because it means they never question whether what they're doing is the right thing. They simply believe it. But there's a difference between belief and action. Confidence is a belief. Courage is an action. And I think that's really important. And whether when you can come up with five seconds of extraordinary courage in a moment, even if the whole rest of your life you feel like you are completely, completely unable to do something. But if you can find that five seconds and you act on it, well, that five seconds of extraordinary courage to me is a much bigger act of leadership than walking around acting like nothing ever scares you or talking about how great you are or what you could do. Yeah, we'll prove it. Like a big part of it, Linda, is I, I've come to believe in myself and so many other people that the phrase, I'm the type of person who is almost always followed by a lie. Like what's true about your character isn't announced, it's demonstrated. And oh, that's a big piece for me. I'm going to stand on that for a second. That is so true. That is so true. <laughs> Say that again. What's true about <laughs> Oh man, you're going to make me say, uh, when, when I talk, one of us has to listen. Um, no, it's, uh, I, I believe it, 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 I believe it was this. Okay. What's true about your character isn't announced. It's demonstrated. Oh, and no. so I just wanted to make sure I got it, got it right again. But you know, and, and I was guilty of that all the time. I, but we've all worked with people who constantly like, I'm the type of person who I'm the type of person who, and it actually bugs you because deep down inside, you know, it's not true. But yeah. I so rarely hear that phrase, and after what comes after it isn't isn't false. You know what I mean? It's that's why you're making such a big deal of it, right? Is because it's not true. It's so true. It's just such a great way to sort of think sideways. You know, I love that's what I love that runs all through the book too, Drew. Is that you come at things, you know, in a sort of diagonal way sometimes. Like for instance, this whole courage notion. It sounds like oh, it's we're always doing hard things. But you tell some great stories about about having the courage to just ask for what would be fun or what you wanted. I mean, courage can. Courage can bring a lot of fun into your life too. You've, you've talked about backstage passes and rides in police cars. <laughs> well, I, I, I didn't take a ride in the police car. Well, I have, but then I quit drinking. But they, um, <laughs> I wish I was kidding. But ultimately, yeah, the, the idea being, uh, I talk a little bit in the book. And if you're listening to this and you want to go get inspired some more, which I know is the whole point of the podcast, there's a great TED talk called 100 Days of Rejection by Zha Zhang. And there's a book he called, called he wrote called Rejection Proof, which I also recommend highly. And I learned about this process that he teaches in this book called Rejection Therapy. I learned about it from a couple of really successful entrepreneurs who basically said, well, we dedicate one day a month to try to be rejected as many times as we can in a 24-hour period. They're just like, that's our whole purpose that day is to have people say no to us. And uh, he's like, we walk into Subway and say, can we make our own sandwiches? You know, they, uh, Jaw takes talks about walking in and asking for a burger refill. If, if the restaurant allows for free refills, ask for a burger refill. They're just saying, pick these things that they, they go up to cops and they say, can we shoot at stop signs? Like in that comedy, super bad. Right. And they said, what we found was, and, and they're right. Cause I started doing it too. What they found was one, you're not rejected as often as you think you're going to be. Two, when you're rejected and you expect it, it has no impact on your self-worth. And three, and this, again, may be a very Canadian thing, but when you're rejected, you are almost always offered something better than what you currently have. And they said, that's where the cop car came in. They said, look, no cop ever let us touch their gun. But two of them did let us drive the squad car around. 
<laughs> and so I adopt that philosophy as well. I use it through a question. And, and look, we're not even going to have time to get into the whole psychological underpinnings of the day one approach. But part of the fundamental piece is that questions are actually a more effective driver of human behavior than than orders or goals, right? So asking someone a question about a behavior is more likely to get them to do it than telling them to do it or asking them to do it. And Mm -hmm. so one of the questions that's a part of my life for courage is what did I try today that might not work, but I tried it anyway. And as a very quick recap to anyone listening, the whole idea is that your brain hates unanswered questions so much that when a question is put into your brain as an expectation, it will experience really powerful psychic discomfort until it answers the question. The brain hates unanswered questions. It will seek an answer consciously and then unconsciously. And if it can't find one, it makes one up and convinces you that it's right. And so the part of our process is we say, what are the things we want to stand for? Courage is one of them. What's the question that if we answer it, we've lived courage? And what have I tried today that might not work, but tried it anyway is one I recommend to so many people. That doesn't mean try things that can end careers or relationships or God help us all lives, but it means doing things like, hey, can I have a burger refill? I asked, I stood at the private terminal at at Toronto airport and asked if I could ride on private jets and it only took eight people before they let me do it. Driving race cars, making announcements on planes, uh, eating at the chef's tables of Michelin star restaurants. And I met the love of my life because- I took one look at her and said, oh, this isn't going to work, but I shall try it anyway. And so that to me is where courage is. We live in a world, we went through an education system that taught us, educated us out of courage, said every mistake you make, you lose points and you never get those points back. And then your grades are bad. And it made us all less concerned with how wise and skilled and impactful we are now and put all of our focus on how many mistakes we made along the way. Mm. And that's a dangerous lesson we were taught. And I think we can unlearn it by a little bit every day trying something that probably won't work, but we try it anyway. And it's also not only a reminder of our courage, but as we watch individuals find a way to say at least a partial yes to things that all of us know they have every right to say no, to which they have every right to say no, it just, it reminds us one of our courage, but also of the fact that most people want to say yes to other people. And I think that's something worth remembering. You know, and that's saying yes to others can come in so many beautiful ways. Like there's a great part. I'm just thumbing through my many notes here. Oh, Drew, you've got to take a moment to talk about how important it is to tell others that we're proud of them. Oh yeah. Parts in the book. See, this is, see every time I talk to you, Linda, my, I got to learn how to give answers to questions that don't involve a story because stories are the basic unit of human understanding. And I love telling them, but I, I think what you're referencing uh, in terms of telling people they're proud of them came from a, a moment where the first question we ever came up with at U of T as part of our social experiment that led to the book about turning values into questions The first question we ever cooked up was, what have I done today to recognize someone else's leadership? That became the first question that we made a expectation for ourselves because the idea was we wanted to live the value of impact, which I know is a fundamental part of this podcast and what we're talking about, everything that you talk about in every winding circles. But what, what have I done today? Or it's a commitment to creating moments that cause people to feel as if they're better off for having interacted with you. We said if we want to live impact or courage or empowerment or any value that people throw around, integrity and honesty, you got to be able to say what that word means. 
And you got to be able to say it's a commitment to certain behaviors. And that question, what have I done today to recognize someone else's leadership? I got to use it so soon after we cooked it up because I went to speak at my old high school and I was in the hotel. I was sorry, not the hotel room. I was in the principal's office and, and the principal had gone to get a coffee which is a cool moment when your high school principal asks you if you want to get a coffee. Um, but there was this man when I was in high school named Mr. Peters, and he was the head custodian. And he was the kindest, gentlest, most empowering guy. Like he knew which of us felt bullied and alienated and left out. And he talked to us and he knew our names. And I was sitting there in that, that office and he busts into the office after seeing me through the window 15 years after he last saw me. And he gives me this big hug and he says, Drew Dudley, it's so good to see you. And I hadn't been there in a decade and a half. And I remember saying to him, Mr. Peters, I can't believe you remember my name. It's been so long. And he said, remember your name. I've been following your whole career and I'm so proud of you. And it was this moment where like when someone says, I'm so proud of you and, and means it, and you can tell they mean it, it has this amazing impact on you. And I started to realize as, as in that moment, how many people in my life I was so proud of. And we all have someone in our lives that we're so proud of. But when was the last time that the expression, I am so proud of you, escaped your lips? That is one of those moments of leadership that we let work and frustration and all the obligations we create for ourselves every day. That's just one of those things that we allow ourselves to put off until one more day, right? This yeah. saying to someone, I am so proud of you. Right. And in saying, I am so proud of you, you are answering the question, how you recognize someone else's leadership. But our world is filled with people who call themselves just people. They use the word just as a diminisher. I'm just a receptionist. I'm just a bus driver. I'm just a teacher. I'm just a kid. And uh, one thing I encourage everyone, if you want to like widen the circle of positive impact, look for that word, that just word, because it is used as a diminisher all the time. And when you hear the word just come out of someone's mouth, including your own, just take a second to ask yourself, was that just used as a diminisher? Because if it was, that's your chance to recognize someone else's leadership because Leaders, humans, good people do not allow people who they know are people of worth to diminish themselves in front of you. Yes. And so every time you hear the word just ask, was it a diminisher? And if it was, then just tell the person why they're not just anything. When you use the word just to describe who you are, what you do, you're giving people permission to expect less from you. And that includes yourself. And I think that we can look for that word. Like if we're looking for a really practical tip. Start looking for that word. You use it all the time. And if you're using it, you're teaching your kids to use it. Like yeah. kids yes. are sponges. And so many of the, the barriers to leadership and impact that exist in all of us were taught to us as kids. Actually, they weren't taught, but they were learned mm. because the world is filled with untaught lessons. And we teach in every word we say, in every interaction we have, we teach. And I think we need to be more aware of what those lessons are. Okay. So I'm, we're going to come back and talk about a, some more practical tips just exactly like that. Let me take a break to talk about these wonderful people that are helping us support the podcast. And then we'll be back to talk about some more practical tips with Drew Dudley. I'm going to take a break from our chat to tell you about a fantastic company, Boone Supply. Boot Supply has a line of really high quality and responsibly sourced water bottles, kitchen reusables, grocery bags, and more. But here's the truly wonderful part. With Boot Supply, you can shop by cause. 
Just select the cause you want to support at the bottom of their homepage, whether it be emergency relief, animals in nature, equality and justice, or many, many more. And they will donate a whopping 40% of your purchase price to the cause you select. They've donated over, wait for it, $100 million to date. So you help the environment with eco-friendly products while also giving to important causes. Everwidening Circles is a Boone Supply affiliate, which means that when you purchase from Boone Supply by using the link in the show notes below, we get a small commission from your purchase. And that really means the world to us. And you're going to be supporting some fantastic causes at the same time. This is truly a win-win-win situation. And all you have to do is purchase from Boone Supply by using the link down below in his show notes. Thank you so much. Okay, we're back. And thank you so much for helping us by supporting these good folks that are on our best supporters list as people who are making this podcast possible. So let's continue. Drew, I want to talk to you about a few more things before you have to dash. Now, there's a wonderful part in the book where you talk about being to let in the chaos and be emotionally generous to your absolute limit. I bet you those are two things right now during the pandemic that would be useful for people to hear about. To let in the chaos. Yeah. I think part of that was um, I I discovered that so many of my friends are ultra marathoners, which made me really ask myself, should we be friends? But uh, one of the, it's, it's so interesting that one of the themes, if anybody out there is an endurance athlete that you probably heard is the expression embrace the suck. And I asked, what does that mean? And they said, it's really hard. It means something different to everyone. But I think what it means is an acknowledgement that everything that you want in this world is on the other side of something crappy. And that we need to recognize that when we get through difficult things, we should give ourselves credit for that. And that to me is something that sticks. I mean, a big part of getting through what's going on in the world right now, I've noticed that there are sort of two different ways or two different groups of people. There's lots of different groups of people. And anytime someone says there's two types of people in this world, it's a little too black and white. But in this world right now, there are individuals for whom what we're facing is the hardest thing they've ever faced. And then there are individuals for whom this is not the hardest thing they've ever faced, which is not to say that it's not incredibly difficult to find our way through all of this. But I think we know it. There are people who, for whom this is the toughest thing they've ever had to go through, and then there are others for whom it is not. And I have discovered that for those for whom this is not the worst thing they've ever faced are handling it better. And I, I don't say that as a shot at the other side of things. What I do do is I think that it's a reminder that the hardest things, the most chaotic things, the most painful things that we go through are tools that we can use to face the next thing that comes. And for me, I mean, the book itself is a symbol to the the ability of an individual to empower people they love. My book was in a bottom drawer. I wrote it. And for a year, I then hid it from myself, mostly, but just the whole world. It was in a bottom drawer. And then my girlfriend at the time found it, read it, yelled at me because it was in a drawer and made me promise to publish it or at least try to get it published. And I promised her I would. And then and she passed away 17 days after I made that promise. But this book never sees the light of day if someone doesn't look at someone they care about and say, you are 
You are better. Your work is better. Your ideas are better than you're giving them credit for. And I'm going to make you not diminish yourself. And she made me promise to try to get it published. And, you know, then a bestseller emerges out of it. And through all of this, there has been a peace and a strength that has come to me knowing that the worst thing that could ever happen to me has already happened. Mm -hmm. Like when we found her the morning of her death, I don't know if there will be a worse day in my life. I know there hasn't been. And so to me, though, as I move through what's going on in the pandemic, I always try to remember the battles that I have fought and won. And I think the message I was trying to get out to people is a couple of things. One, you are not, you don't deserve the bad things that happen to you. And we convince ourselves all the time that we do. You do not deserve the bad things that happen to you. You may be responsible for them and you should be accountable for them, but you don't deserve them. We also know every bad thing we've ever done. You know, every lie you've ever told and, and every shortcut you've ever taken and every like little betrayal of someone you care about, you know them all. And so when we think about ourselves compared to other people, we always think that we're worse people than we are because we know all the worst things we've done. And I think that part of what I want to get across to people here is that when I hear individuals who I care about talk about how they're weak or how they can't make it or how this is going to get them, I always like to ask, and I ask all of you listening, think about the last challenge you faced in your life that you didn't get through, that you just were in, that you didn't survive. And when you make people try to tell you the moment where they didn't make it, the problem is nobody can do it because they're still here. (laughs) Like if you're still here, you don't have an example of something you didn't survive. You have gotten through every challenge you've ever faced in your life. You might not be happy how you got through it. You might have scars from it. You might feel you're worse off because of it, but you did survive it. There is not a single piece of evidence in this world that you cannot survive anything you've challenged because you faced everything you've ever faced. And I think that we should use that as a reminder of our strength when we try to get through the next things. We sometimes won't think about the worst times in our lives because we think it symbolizes how we broke. But I also think it symbolizes the fact that we're on the other side of that now. And so... Nobody out there listening to this has ever failed to get through the toughest stuff in your life. You're batting a thousand on surviving the biggest challenges in your life. And so you should give yourself credit for that because nobody has any proof that you can't do it, including yourself. And to me, when it all comes down to it, I sometimes think about the toughest day I ever lived through and then remind myself that I lived through it. Mm And at this point, you know, and we we don't even have time to dive into it. But at this point, like I've gone through alcoholism, bipolar and losing the woman I loved. You want to take me down at this point, you better bring some kryptonite. (laughs) And I think that all of us have that in our minds. We really, really do. And you should give yourself credit for it, everybody. Yes, that is such a really (laughs) important perspective for people right now. We have done hard things before. We can keep putting one foot in front of the other and we can actually take people to some pretty great places with that, with everyday leadership. And Hey, even if we don't have the power to take people better places, we can choose not to try to hold them where they are or pull them back down. There are times when it's not our job to inspire the people around us. It is our job to get out of the way and not drag them down because it's not your job to always make somebody else's world better. There's times where we just don't have it in us. But in those moments, we can then choose, do we make it worse? And I think that 
being in a positive influence in the world doesn't mean that you're always a positive influence. It does mean having the strength sometimes to recognize that you're a negative one and to take a moment to step out of it, out of the way until you're no longer that. Mm-hmm. So people are like, oh, I have to play a character. Nah, like there's a difference between being the one who inspires and recognizing that at this particular moment, you're not equipped for that. And I think that that's an important distinction to make as well, that you're still making the world better when you recognize those moments where you need to step away because you're only going to make it worse. Absolutely. That is the other half, right? That is the other half to knowing what to do next. Okay. So one of the parts that I have starred and a lot of personal notes by is this notion of some of the most important things that happen in our lives are the unplanned consequences of our everyday actions. Talk about yeah, that. you know, I think that line in the book may have emerged from a Q&A I was doing. And it was at a business school. And I remember one of the professors in the room raised their hand at the end of my presentation, which is always worrisome because academics always have a problem with my work. <laughs> anybody who's sort of risen, not anybody, but a lot of people have risen to sort of the top of society or they have a lot of letters after their name or they make a bunch of money. There's often a pushback from the idea that we should talk about leadership as being accessible to everyone, because I think that individuals who rise to the top of a system often push back against any suggestion that the system should be revised somehow, because it's really hard to Uh argue that a system that has rewarded you with power and influence and profile is in any way flawed. But he rose his hand and he said, what is the single most significant transformative moment in your career? And that's such an interesting question to take a step back and look at your life. Because I I forget who said it once that it's weird how we never recognize the most significant moments in our lives as they're happening. And I think that that is something that I always try to remember is that, man, most of the biggest moments in my life I didn't recognize were the biggest moments in my life as I was in them. And the stuff that I was convinced was really hasn't played a big role. But I remember sitting there and thinking about that. What is the single most transformative moment in your career? He specifically said career, which is one of the problems with, I apologize if I said life before. One of the problems with higher education is it's all about your career, your career, your career, very little about your life. And I started to realize something that the most transformative moment in my career, I probably wasn't there for it. Like I probably wasn't in the room for the most transformative moment in my career because the most transformative moment in my career was probably a group of people discussing me, my work, who I am and determining whether or not to give me an opportunity whether it was the group of people who decided to give me the job at the University of Toronto, whether it was the group of people who decided whether to give me a spot at TEDx Toronto, which is where I delivered the TED Talk that a lot of people have found me through. A lot of the biggest moments in our lives, we're not a part of them. What's a part of them is how we've made people feel, how our work has impacted people. That's a part of those discussions, and we're not in there. So our behaviors have to speak for us in most of the biggest moments in our lives because we're not there in those moments. It's people talking. And, I re- and there, there, there are everyday repetitive. Yeah. Leadership right? really isn't in an, leadership isn't in us doing extraordinary things. Leadership is in us doing ordinary things with extraordinary consistency. Right. And so one of the, your question was, it's about our, the power of our everyday moments. 
is that I started to realize that it is how you behave on a day-to-day basis that is the most significant influencer of how people feel about you, how people talk about you, how you feel about yourself. But from a really young age, we've been taught to try to achieve things and acquire things so that people look at us as if we're leaders, so that we feel that we can call ourselves leaders, that we've lost sight of the fact that the primary determinant of how we're viewed by others and more importantly by ourselves is how we actually behave. And that to me, Mm -hmm. it was a big eye opener to remind myself that I think that we think that we're going to be right there in a moment to change the course of our life or our career. And it's usually not. The individual moment that changes our life and our career, in that moment, we're often not there. But it's how we behaved in the days leading up to it. And for me, I mean, I think I've told this to you before. When I traveled around the world before all of this, every single speech, I'd start by asking how many of you are completely and totally comfortable with calling yourself a leader? And less than 1% of the time, do I get half the people in the room willing to raise their hand? One time out of 100, do I get it? Over a 1,000 speeches. And most of them are children under the age of 12. Because because the older we get, the more we treat leadership like it's something we need permission to use. That we look at the world as if Mm -hmm. some external individual or organization has to bestow upon us whatever it is we need to feel comfortable calling ourselves a leader in front of other people, whether it's letters after our name, whether it's the title of doctor, whether it's a certain amount of money, we look for validation of our leadership from external sources. And I think that that makes us believe that it's accolades and achievements over time that dictate who we are. And what it is, is it's the behavior that make up each one of those days that ultimately determines the opportunities that we get. And yet we focus on evaluating our leadership over blocks of time, a month, a a semester, a year, a five-year strategic plan, as opposed to whether or not we behave today in a way that was aligned with the values we have clearly defined want, we want to define us. And that's, that is super, that's a super important perspective right now when during this pandemic time. There is so much uncertainty day to day. Like we opened our chat before we started recording with the fact that Canada is getting all buttoned down in a, in a lockdown phase. So Drew had to make some really fast, really important decisions about where he was going to be located. And you crossed the, you crossed your, the entire country. <laughs> I mean, we don't have time to really think about things in blocks of six months time anymore. No, I think the whole idea of the day one process, um, which is a focus on daily behaviors as opposed to, you know, where you are of a blocks of time is to recognize that I wanted to create a roadmap through uncertainty. I wanted to give people a clear idea of what to do every day when you didn't know what the future held, because often when we don't know what the future holds, we hesitate to be, to act in the present because we're afraid we'll screw up the future. Like, well, I don't know what it's going to be like in six months. So I don't want to move here or make this decision because what if it's the wrong decision this Mm -hmm. many months from now? And I think that knowing that so often in our lives that we're not going to be able to tell what the future is, I think it's important to recognize that it's so much more important to be decisive than certain in life because you can be decisive, but you can never truly be certain. And so for me, the whole process that we teach about focusing on daily behaviors, identifying them, and then engaging in a particular process to make sure you live them 
is all about recognizing that you're not always in charge of what you have to do every day, but you're always in charge of who you are. And I want people to recognize, I don't want to blow smoke up people's butts. You're not always in charge of what you have to do. Sometimes you're a student and you're young and your parents control your life. Sometimes the economy is going to limit your options. Sometimes a pandemic is going to come out of nowhere and take away a lot of your options. I think it's just important to recognize we're not always in charge of what we have to do or what we get to do, but we, we are always in charge of who we are. I mean, it's man, it's man's search for oh, meaning, man. right? And yes. that yeah. to me is a key piece is I wanted to give people a roadmap through uncertainty so that you may not know where you're going to be in six months, but at least you know what to do today. So when that unknown future arrives, you know, you can be proud of the person that you are. And that is determined by how you behave each day. Absolutely. You know, that, that book, we're going to put all, everything that we're referring to down in the show notes, but Victor Frankel's book, Man Search for Meaning, is, it sits right next to my little, little chair by the fireplace right now. Every day I look at it. It's one of those things where you can't really dismiss it, right? I mean, no matter what we're facing, yeah. here is the story of a man who, yeah. who never actually says it, but could very easily be like, oh, oh, I'm sorry. Were you facing something difficult that was hard to get through? Like, <laughs> You know, it's, there's fewer and fewer people who've lived through the Holocaust still alive, but you know, some of them have to look at the pandemic and be like, everybody, you can do this. Like, and, and you have a lot more control over your behavior in it than we did with the difficulty thing that we went through. Pain is, you can't compare pain to pain because anything that's worse than what you're used to is pain. And we shouldn't evaluate Mm -hmm. one person's pain versus another. But what I look at when I read Viktor mm-hmm. Frankl's work and, and the work of many other individuals who've gone through very difficult things is there is this constant central theme that says we did not allow what we could not control to convince us that we couldn't control anything. And I think that's a, a powerful thing. That is such a powerful thing for this moment. Um, I, and, and by the way, we have, I've mentioned them before. We have these great folks that edit the podcast and they will put that and other great quotes from Drew and anything we reference down in the show notes below. So Drew, before we wrap up, I just have to ask you about this whole client concept of plan to matter. You know, I wake up every morning and I have a little, little session, talking session with myself about who's counting me, you know, what I've, what what I, what's, what feels like it, I can't wait to get to it. It's making my life so full of joy. I go through this process, but I have been using this plan to matter notion ever since I read your book. So tell us a little bit more about that before we wrap up. Yeah. The question. Uh, okay. Where do I start on this one without telling nine stories? Just to respect the time of all of you and your listeners. I was in higher education for 15 years, you know, running this big leadership program at this big prestigious university. And it's prestigious because it, they said so. It was on all their brochures. But I, I had never asked this one question. I find that so many people think they're not leaders because they don't think they have enough answers. And one thing that's become very clear to me is that the best leaders are not the ones who have all the answers. They are incredibly good at asking a particular type of question. And it's the type of question where the person doing the asking or sorry, the person being asked learns more than the person doing the asking. And my favorite example of one of those were or those questions, the type of question that when you ask it, the person who hears the question realizes what they don't know. And as we talked about earlier, the human brain does not like becoming aware 
it doesn't have an answer. And so it will desperately seek one. So if you can ask someone one of those questions that sends them on a mission to find an answer, you can often help people grow much more than if you tell them something. And I accidentally asked the most powerful version of one of those questions I ever had to this really brilliant student. And he was so scared about what the future was going to hold after he graduated that I remember sitting down with him and I just decided I wanted to ask him some questions, calm him down, get him, help him down to realize his own wisdom. And I asked him a question. I had never asked a student in 15 years of higher education. I just looked at him and I said, well, okay, Kyle, man, why do you matter? And I just figured like we'd start there. Like he mattered so much to so many people. He was such an incredible force in the world on the campus. And I said to him, why do you matter? And looking back now, I realized how strange is it took a decade and a half of working with students before I asked one that question, why do you matter? And I didn't know at the time what it did to people. (laughs) And he blinked at me twice and then slowly says, well, I don't yet. That's why I'm working so hard. And I think that's an unacceptable answer to get from anyone that you care about. But I started asking other students and I was getting the same thing. They couldn't give me an answer or they, they gave this diminishing one. And then I started asking my colleagues and then people who outranked me, quote unquote. And then I started traveling around the world and asking hundreds and hundreds of people this question, why do you matter? People who are by every objective measure wildly successful. And, and 95% of the people I asked either could not give me an answer or the answer they were giving me, they were clearly making up on the spot. And, and I had to start asking myself, how can we claim what we're delivering to people in this world is an education when some of the most dynamic and driven and compassionate and kind and well-educated people on the planet can't answer why do you matter because no one's ever asked them before. And so I'll tell you something here. If you're listening to this, clearly, if you hear this, you're listening to this, but you know what I mean. If you have kids, <laughs> go ask them that question. Because there's a difference between how a kid under the age of five answers that question and everybody else on the planet does. Because if your kids are under the age of five, they give you the most wonderful, heart-melting, wholesome, no pretentious answers to why do I matter. But when when we send our kids off to school and the education system is so empowering and so important, so liberating, but can also be very, very dangerous because it has these untaught lessons. And one of those untaught lessons that people learn very early is why you matter isn't up to you to determine. It's supposed to be evaluated externally. And so most of us spend 20 of the most formative years of our lives in that system. And that's a lesson that we never unlearn, that why you matter isn't up to you to determine. And so what I encourage everyone, the question, why do you matter? I think, one, we don't get asked enough. Two, we believe it's not up to us to determine, so we don't ask ourselves. But I think that a big part of the reason we struggle with it is because we hope to matter and we hope to lead and we hope to make a difference. And I think that hope is a wildly powerful force. And I think that the entire purpose of ever widening circles is obviously to foster hope by pointing out the things, the the behaviors of people that give us hope. Hope is such a powerful force and you should foster it in the people that you care about and everyone that you touch. But hope is a terrible strategy. And if you (laughs) want to matter and we want to lead and we want to make a difference, we have to plan to matter, plan to lead and plan to make a difference. And the whole idea of day one came when what I was teaching at the university in terms of leadership theory started to meld with actual experiences in my life. And this man said to me once that he approaches every day of his life as if it is his first day of work because 
there is an inherent humility, forgiveness, and commitment on your first day. And I've had so many day ones in my life, day one of starting my own company, day one of going from 320 pounds to 100 pounds lighter, day one of no longer hiding that I'm bipolar and wanting people to recognize that, yeah, we live in a world that equates mental illness with mental weakness, but I don't have a good life for someone with mental illness. I have an amazing life. And I had day one of a life without alcohol. And I'm powerless over alcohol. But one of the things that I learned in recovery is if you don't want to have a drink for the rest of your life, you have to choose not to have a drink today. And all that matters is how you behave today. Because what that does is it means that you can't rest on your laurels of what you've done in the past. For me, it's like, well, I haven't had a drink in however many years. But that doesn't mean that I just get to cruise through today. It's the same with Have you been compassionate? Have you been kind? Have you been the person you want to be for every day for five years? None of that. You don't get to rest on that laurels. You got to do it again today. But it also means that you can't be intimidated by all that's still to come. Like I have an addiction to fight with every single day. And I hope I have thousands of more days in my life. And the thought of fighting this fight every day for thousands of days is overwhelming. It makes you just want to quit right now. So you can't think about how many days are still to come. All you worry about is, did I do it today? And if you treat every day as if it's your first day of recovery, all that you have to worry about is, did I do it today? And to me, our leadership and mattering is the same thing. So I guess uh, it's a long answer, the why do you matter? But I'll close with, I guess, this. My work is focused on giving people a series of questions to answer every day. And those questions are tied to the values that they claim they want to stand for. And I help people figure out their own values and create their own questions. But if I was going to encapsulate the why we matter piece, what we've adopted is this philosophy. And and I encourage all of you to think about it too. Imagine if every night before you go to bed, you have to prove you deserve another day on this planet. Not at the end of a semester, if you're a student or a year or a five-year plan, every single night before you go to bed, you have to prove you deserve another day on this planet. And to prove it, you have to pass a test. And for me, that test has six questions, each one tied to a core value. I got to get three questions out of six. And only if you get three of those questions out of six, do you have the, like, do you get another day on this planet? But you're given the questions in the morning. You have to have answers to a bunch of these questions by the end of the day to earn another day, but you're given the questions in the morning. If that was our reality, those questions would be non-negotiable. Like we wouldn't answer them between meetings and emails and picking up the kids. They would drive our behavior every day. And because my questions are tied to the values I want to define me as a person, that philosophy, what it does is it demands that you prioritize your to-be list above your to-do list. And I think it's hard for a lot of us to recognize that It's been a lot of years for some of us since we can honestly say that most of our decisions have been driven by who we want to be ahead of what we have to get done. And I'm not saying you have to choose one over the other, but I am saying that we need to be more conscious about making sure that in the course of finishing our to-do list, we have to make sure we live our to-be list. Because right now, I think we choose one over the other, as opposed to making sure that we find a way to live our to-be through our Mm to-do. And the idea of the leadership test, the day one process, everything in the book is to make sure that every single day you recognize, yeah, you're not always in charge of what you have to do, but you're always in charge of who you are. And as long as you answer some of these questions each day tied to your values, then even when everything outside of your control blows up in your face, you can point to these moments and say, yeah, but I mattered right here. I mattered right here. 
It's about giving yourself evidence that you matter because right now most of us ignore most of the evidence we create every day. And I think that's so important. And so that's what the leadership test is about saying, these are my values. These are the questions tied to them. And every single day, even if everything outside of my control blows up in my face, I can point to these two or three moments where I was like, yeah, but in this moment, I was the type of person that I wanted to be. And I think right now we sacrifice that to be the type of person who gets it all done. Well, I just think that uh, that your book would be so timely for a lot of people who are reassessing exactly these sorts of things that drive us. It's been a couple of years since I read it, but, but in preparing for this, this, (laughs) I, I went crazy diving back into all my annotations and I, I will, we'll wrap up this conversation and have another that we can go deeper because the six questions are important. And like, like, I yeah, I'm sorry. I never even got to those, man. Like, this is so odd. Like so to have a conversation with you that, that isn't about the actual process. So I apologize to anyone out there. Who's like, yep. damn it. Just tell us how it's done. No, th- th- And that's the beauty of the book. It's about, it, it's, I would say it's about a half theory and half practicality. And in the theory part, Drew entertains us so much with the stories that we that we know exactly where we are able to head for new possibilities and potential that we never dreamed we had. So thank you so, so much, Drew, for coming on the podcast and helping us sort of put things in a new perspective, because these these, these times are good for that, right? I think they a lot of us have paused yeah. and we're, we're ignoring things that used to just get our attention that really didn't deserve it. And <laughs> pick up the book. This is day one by Drew Dudley. And you will find you come out of this pandemic with all kinds of opportunities that he points to, to make a world a better place for yourself and others. So thank you so much, Drew. And we will continue this conversation. I hope so. It's it's always such a pleasure to... We've had a lot of conversations, I know, since we first met. And <laughs> you are incorrigible when it comes to being knocked off, like the idea the world will be a better place. And I think that I said earlier, right off the top, that the story is the basic unit of human understanding. And what I think you've acknowledged is that There are a lot of people out there who are either unwilling or unable to tell their story because they think it's boring or unimportant. Or I think what's very common is it's not as impressive as someone else's. But we have no idea which part of our story will find its way to the right person at which time. And so keep sharing stories. And what I think is so great about what you do is not just the idea of a conspiracy of goodness, but the idea that there are untold stories that sometimes people have to be encouraged to share. And I think you give them a platform to do it. So thanks for letting me be one of them. Here well, because we, as I mentioned at the beginning, you're a charter member of the conspiracy of goodness. That's for sure. So tell us where everybody can connect with the rest of you at work. There's the book. What else? You know, DrewDudley.com is the place where you got it all. It's got the book, obviously, which I just realized now is probably a good Christmas gift. Mm-hmm. Uh, my publisher hates me because I will not promote the book <laughs> enough because <laughs> I just think it sounds so cheesy. But yeah, the book is on DrewDudley.com. You can grab it there at, at fine booksellers everywhere and also some shifty booksellers as well. It's also where you can find me on on social media, though I, I honestly have stepped back a little from social media over the last few months and my life has gotten significantly healthier but I'm a day one Drew everywhere on social media. Instagram is really my favorite because Instagram tends to be the least toxic of the social media places because most of it is food and pets. 
And I think that that's awesome. So DrewW.com is the place to find that, the book, videos, uh, the online program if you want it to go through. Yeah. One thing I will pitch, although I don't like doing promotion, if you're interested in finding out surfacing your core values and creating your own questions and your own customized leadership tests, we have an online program that walks you through it. It's sort of an interactive live version of the book broken up into five-minute blocks. And we have been selling that in support of frontline healthcare workers for the past several months. We're very lucky. We've managed to make thousands of dollars for them, which just blew me away. People support, but the program used to be 200 bucks and now we're doing it for 10 and every, yeah, every cent of profit that we make out of it, it, we put into a pot for frontline healthcare workers that we were hoping we could celebrate with them at the end of the year, but maybe we'll push it to the beginning of next summer. And we'll make sure that we can provide them with a thank you for the work that they have done and will continue to do. So that's at DrewDudley.com as well. And if you're looking for a way to sort of dive a little farther into the nitty gritty of what we talked about and at the same time support like some real heroes, that's a great way to do it. Absolutely. Oh, great. Okay, well... Uh, let's continue this conversation. We'll get into those six questions. In the meanwhile, everybody go buy the book and your life will be better. And you will probably make everyone's world a, a significantly improved along the way just by sharing what you can do as an ordinary person in the way of leadership every day. So as always, dive into the ever widening circles universe by visiting ewc.co. And if there's students in your life, turn them loose on our education website at ewced.com. And when people ask me how they can help ever-widening circles, I always tell them to subscribe to the app. That's the number one thing you can do to help our efforts. For less than a dollar a month, you'll have the antidote to the daily news right in the palm of your hand. And one dollar will help us send a signal to content creators that people will support positive content. The book Happiness is an Option is my contribution to the to our times right now. I wrote it during the pandemic, and it will give you also, along with Drew's concepts, a lot of tools to find a way to thrive during these times. I hope you'll find all these connections to goodness and progress carry you through your week, and you start finding all that joy and wonder that Drew and I have been talking about. Have a great day.